Magnolia, pull the string. Pull it, pull it, pull it. Pull it, pull it, keep pulling. Here is a duck. That was the wrong one. It's okay. You want to do it again? Okay, now go. Hi, my name is Annie Grossman, and I'm a dog trainer. This podcast is brought to you by School for the Dogs, a Manhattan-based facility I own and operate along with some of the city's finest dog trainers. During this podcast, we'll be answering your questions, geeking out on animal behavior, discussing pet trends, and interviewing industry experts. Welcome to School for the Dogs podcast. Hello, human friends. Annie here. As I've mentioned before, I've been recording mostly in my neighbor's apartment while he's out of town so that I can... uh, escape the craziness of my apartment but he doesn't have air conditioning so I couldn't deal with sitting in his apartment to record today so I came back to my apartment to record after like sweating profusely while trying to record down there and then I realized you can't really have the air conditioning on anyway when you're recording a podcast because of the background noise which made me think about all the sweaty podcasters uh, working from home right now. So I blast the AC really, really high, just long enough to try and cool down the room while I record. So anyway, hi. I wanted to respond to an interesting question I got from a listener who has uh, been in touch with me uh, before, Supriya is uh, her name. I might be saying it wrong. Supriya. Such a, such a pretty name. That sounds like surprise. Um, she wrote, Hey Annie, I am currently studying for the psychology section of the MCAT. And while I've never heard of many things in this section before, I am totally nailing the section on classical and operant conditioning because I've been listening to your podcast for a while now. I was wondering if you happen to have time before my exam in September, would you be able to expand on operant conditioning in terms of dog training, which is what makes sense to me. Specifically, I'm studying reinforcement schedules, innate versus learned behaviors, escape and avoidance learning, the Bobo doll experiment, and associative versus non-associative learning. Then there's also biological constraints on learning which I'm studying specifically for humans, but I'm curious about this in dogs too. Of course, if you don't have time, this is completely okay. Just thought I would ask considering I've learned so much from you already. Isn't that a nice email to get? Isn't that a cool email to get? Now, first of all, just wanted to say that I'm flattered that you feel that you've learned so much um, and um, amazed that anybody is asking me for MCAT advice. I haven't taken a science class since high school and did not do did not do well in science classes in high school. I think I had one math and science requirement in college and I took a uh, HTML class which was probably the most useful class I took in all of college. I did take uh, some psychology in college, but I just wanted to preface any answer to this question by saying that 
I am, I would say, an educated layman on all things relating to the science of behavior. I think it's an endlessly interesting branch of science that I wish everyone knew more about. And, you know, it's an area of science that in my experience and all of my schooling was hardly ever even mentioned. And uh, now it's something that I love to learn about, love to think about, but that is really only because of my interest in dog training. I didn't get interested in the science of behavior and then follow that path to dog training. I got interested in becoming a dog trainer, not really knowing what that was gonna mean. I mean, I figured I was going to learn how to somehow make a living helping people with their dogs, but the the finer points of how to train dogs or how I was going to turn that into a business, all of that has been a journey. And it's a journey that has made me understand the world in such a new way. It's made me understand all, all of uh, animal behavior, including human behavior, in a new way. And it's a way of understanding things that makes a lot of sense because we are all behaving all the time and we are surrounded by people who are behaving all the time and dog training is just an application of this science that is, you know, it's rewarding when you can think about operant conditioning while training your dog because you can start seeing how how the same principles, things are being reinforced, things are being punished, how those apply to your own life, your own choices, the things you do, the things your children do, the things your employer do. And when you're living with a dog, it's like you can kind of experiment with how to teach in the most effective way possible and how to make your dog a better learner and you're kind of doing the same things that like dolphin trainers are doing but you are doing it in a way where it's where it's like you're playing a game with your dog anyway anyway my entree into the fascinating world of uh behavioral science was through dog training and what's interesting is there are people uh, who I know who have discovered the 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 fascinating world of uh, you know behavioral science behavior analysis through other fields be it working with kids working with gymnasts working in workplace management there are leaders in each of these fields that are that are trying to systematically show people how each of these areas relates to learning and how a rather basic even crude understanding of learning theory and the science of behavior operant conditioning classical conditioning can be so transformative. Now, this is not to say you can not train a dog if you don't understand uh, the basics of behavioral science. 
there are many people in many areas, not just dog training, who have figured out how to use positive reinforcement and uh, use it wisely and well to teach others. And they may not know any of the sciencey terms. And this doesn't make them magicians or anything. It just makes them smart. They've figured out what works and what doesn't work. On the other side of the coin, of course, there are also people who have figured out what works, but they've tacked on all kinds of weird superstitions. You know, in the dog training world, this this is the stuff of... It's all the, the Caesar Milan talking about energy and walking through the door before your dog and... And also, you know, not committing towards using the least invasive methods possible in training. Uh, but what they're doing may may work as well. I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, it's possible to fly a plane without understanding all the physics that goes into keeping that plane in the air. And... At first, I think I was that kind of pilot. I was just, you know, learning how to fly a plane in terms of how do I train a dog. But then I was like, oh my God, this is so interesting. I want to know why this is working. But it's also possible to fly a plane and not really care why it's staying in the air. Those people could be benefiting from the science without totally understanding it. And then on the other side of things, you know, it's possible to fly the plane while whistling happy birthday the whole time and be convinced that it's your whistling that's keeping the thing in the air, which is how I would define a lot of uh, dog training that's existed in the last century. For instance, Rudd Weatherwax, who I talked about in the last episode, who was Lassie's trainer and was a big believer in... uh, in using some dog training techniques that worked thanks to classical conditioning and operant conditioning but were perhaps in my opinion a little misguided so i wanted to talk a a little bit about some of these things that supriya was asking about but wanted uh to just preface things by saying i am not an expert i am just someone who is excited about applying this stuff to dog training and found it through dog training and I don't have a master's, I don't have a PhD, I do have a bachelor's degree in individualized study, which is about as meaningless as it sounds. But there are two books on this stuff that I have learned a lot from. One is I guess it's kind of a college textbook. It's called Behavior Principles in Everyday Life by John D. Baldwin and Janice I. Baldwin. The other one is by Pamela J. Reed, PhD, called Accelerated Learning, explaining in plain English how dogs learn and how best to teach them. So the first thing that she asks about is schedules of reinforcement. Now, everything is under some schedule or schedules of reinforcement, and there are schedules of punishment as well. And schedules can really affect 
behavior, how, how the behavior happens, when the behavior happens, if the behavior happens, what intensity, the intensity with which the behavior happens. If you pick up either one of these books, you can read all the fancy names for the different kinds of schedules of reinforcement. And you can read how each one affects behavior, but I'm going to attempt to explain a little bit about schedule, schedules of enforcement, of reinforcement, sorry, as I understand them. First of all, you have fixed interval schedules. And the way I think of it with most of the training that I do with, uh, with my dog or with other dogs, uh, training is on a one-to-one fixed interval schedule. Every time a behavior happens, if that's a behavior I like, I am going to reinforce the behavior. Now, of course, in real life and not in a lab, I might sometimes miss certain behaviors, but the way I think of it, let's say something is happening like a sit. Sometimes I am going to reward that sit with a treat. Sometimes I might reward that sit with a pat on the head or just a smile. But my goal is to maintain the behavior. And I think the best way to maintain a behavior is to be extremely consistent with your reinforcement. Now, there might be times when I neglect to reinforce him because I don't realize that he's responded to me giving the cue for sit or I'm, I don't know, distracted or I mean, it can happen, right? If there's no reinforcement and also nothing, you know, bad happens to the dog, then that behavior is now under extinction, which means it is on its way to stop happening. But, you know, I've built up so much Um, you know, I love the term mass, like I've built uh, this behavior of sitting has been rewarded so much time. Like I've put so much money into that bank account by, you know, paying every, paying my dog for sitting pretty much whenever he sits that I'm not going to be too worried about that behavior going unreinforced some of the time. A behavior being under extinction does not mean that it's just going to suddenly go away or even that it's totally going to go away at all. It just means it's like that, you know, we talk about the four quadrants and then there's that fifth, that fifth part of operant conditioning, which is nothing happening. And actually in the good dog training course, I uh, give an example with um, a little animation of it's similar to getting paid to go to work. That's a fixed interval schedule Um, you know I work four or five days and then I get a paycheck well I don't actually get a paycheck after working for five days but in theory someone could and if that happened every Friday you would probably continue showing up to work on Monday assuming you didn't you know totally hate your job and that money was worth it to you etc etc so imagine you know you get paid every week for five years one Friday you come into work and there's no paycheck for you uh, there's no explanation you will probably still come into work on Monday 
all else being equal, because there has been that that uh, behavior of going up going to work has uh, so much mass. It's been reinforced so many times. But if you went to work and got paid at the end of the first week and then the second week there was no paycheck there, that behavior of going to work maybe hasn't uh, acquired enough mass. It hasn't been reinforced enough. So, you know, it's likely that you wouldn't show up for work the week after that. And another thing with, with something like sitting is, you know, I think that the act of, of sitting probably feels good to your dog most of the time if, if they're in, you know, the mood to rest a little bit. Uh, and uh, so I think the way I see it, just the very act of sitting, the enjoyment of sitting is also like putting money into that bank account. It's, it's rewarding that behavior, reinforcing that behavior. Self-reinforcement, I've learned, is not actually a, a real term. So don't study that for your MCATs, um, but it's the way in which I think about these things. As far as other schedules of reinforcement, other schedules, uh, the way I see it, are more important when you're teaching a new behavior for behaviors that are, are already learned that you're just trying to maintain in dog training, we're gonna stick to that one-to-one -one ratio. But there are lots of other schedules you can use which can improve a behavior or solidify a newly learned behavior. And again, go to these books for the more sciencey terms. But, you know, shaping, for example, when you're shaping a new behavior, you may occasionally withhold a reward in order to try to get your dog to try something new. And uh, if you're withholding the reward, well, maybe you're going to be withholding it uh, for something having to do with time. I am only going to reward my dog if he stays in this sit for five seconds. That's one kind of schedule. Another kind of schedule might be, and actually this is something I often suggest on the street, is uh, to reward your dog at some uh, fixed distance that uh, is a distance that you can remind yourself of. So I'll say, you know, reward every time you see the bumper of a car, or reward every time you see a tree on your block, or every fire hydrant. Your reward might be contingent on time, or distance that actually doesn't have anything to do with your dog's behavior. Actually, to go back to the, the comparison to people going to work, you know, I am someone who doesn't respond super well to what I guess is called like a fixed interval schedule. When I had a job where I got paid at the end of every week regardless of how I performed. I was just a terrible employee. You know, I would just like do the bare minimum. And uh, actually at this one job I remember, I went away for two weeks and when I came back I realized my boss hadn't even realized I'd left. And you know, I, I was kind of aware that it was a pretty decent situation I was in if I could just keep getting paid for basically not doing very much work. but. 
but that was uh, a ratio of uh, rewards that did nothing to um, particularly reinforce uh, particularly good behaviors on my part, good work. And I guess it's kind of like dogs who are fed at, at the same mealtime every day, uh, no matter what the preceding behavior was. And, you know, for most dogs, that's not really a problem. What's being reinforced is, I guess, whatever happened right before the dog gets its meal or what's happening while the dog gets his meal. But most people aren't feeding their dog in such a way where they're considering that that bowl of food is reinforcing any specific behavior. So, you know, I think most dogs are basically just being reinforced for being in the kitchen because they get their meals in the kitchen at a certain time every day. But, you know, where things get interesting when you're training new behaviors is when you are thoughtful about when you are delivering those rewards because um, that is what is going to help you engage your dog's brain and get new and cool behaviors uh, and of course create new associations and I know for me it's just a much more interesting way to live. I've always done better as a freelancer, as an entrepreneur, doing things that are rewarded at a variable rate. I think anyone who has any hustle in them is like that. In, uh, in the book Don't Shoot the Dog, uh, I remember Karen Pryor has a, a great part where she compares how different schedules of reinforcement produce uh, different kinds of behavior, but also kind of like different kinds of people. If I'm remembering correctly, she talks about jazz musicians and actors and how jazz musicians, they do this massively creative Im improv part of a song and everybody claps right away. So that behavior is reinforced right away each time. Whereas an actor maybe gets applauded for once at the end of a play, which might be long after his part on stage, or might not ever get any feedback because something goes on TV and they don't sit in a room while other people are watching it and clapping or whatever. Maybe nobody ever reviews their movie, or maybe they do, but it's a year after they filmed it anyway. Anyway, it's sort of interesting to think about how those different rates of reinforcement, uh, different schedules of reinforcement, uh, different ratios. I get confused by all these words, variables, da 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 da. I, I do better with with, <laughs> with the real examples. Another example would be um, of of I guess variable versus fixed is, and I think about this whenever I take via. Via is. Um, is a service in New York City where you can share a, like a minivan with other people and they have like fixed stops, like a bus stop, um, versus something like Uber. You know, the Via drivers, I, I believe, at least they used to be on uh, a salary. They got the same amount of money uh, whether they had passengers or not. Um, they were paid uh, per... I guess per day or per hour 
Um, whereas like Lyft drivers, Uber drivers um, are paid for how much they drive and how many passengers uh, they have. Um, and uh, I, I'd be interested to talk to some people who have worked um, at one place or the other, or maybe both, because I'm guessing that those different schedules of payment have affected those drivers' behavior. To bring it back to dog training, you know, it's like you're starting out when you're training a new behavior on uh, every every behavior is going to get rewarded schedule. That's where you know I call it criteria zero. You're existing here. You get a you get a treat, right? We're always trying to like make sure the dog is just making good associations to begin with, even if the behaviors aren't stellar. Um, especially when you're working with puppies, so you're starting out on this uh, fixed ratio one to one. Then you are not gonna you're gonna go through a period of not rewarding every single behavior because that's how you shape new behaviors. And actually, sometimes withholding a behavior is a great way to get like uh, an extinction burst is is what it's called, where like an animal just suddenly like tries every every possible thing they can think of because they're like a little bit frustrated. There's there's uh, like dog trainers will talk about like riding the wave of the extinction burst, uh, like keeping the dog in the game, keeping the dog interested, but uh, withholding your your reward in order to get new behaviors. Um, and you know, let's say you're shaping a dog to go to a mat, like the, the very basic behavior to shape. And actually, I have a podcast episode on that. You know, at first you're gonna maybe reward when the dog puts one paw on the mat, and then when they put two paws on the mat. Uh, but that might mean after the dog puts one paw on the mat, you're waiting for him to put two paws on the mat, and that there's a few times when he puts one paw on the mat and nothing happens. If you have done a good job of adequately reinforcing your dog up to that point, you will have built enough mass that your dog is probably not going to completely give up and walk away. Uh, the likelihood that that behavior is going to become extinct because you have withheld one or two rewards is probably not great, but that's part of the art of both uh, training and knowing your animal, knowing what like frustration level uh, your animal can live with. Once your dog knows a behavior, you will most likely return or try to return to rewarding every successful behavior as you're working to maintain that behavior. Okay, uh, much more that could be said on this topic. We will address it some other time. Um, it's rich and meaty and wonderful, and I'm glad uh, Supriya is asking these questions. Or Supriya. I'm sorry, you're going to have to tell me after you listen to this how to say your name because I feel bad that I, <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, okay. Then she asked about innate versus learned behaviors. Um, well, I mean, when it comes to dogs or any animals, some behaviors are baked in. Baked in not being <laughs> the scientific terms. You're not gonna get those from me. Um, but some behaviors are like built in. And these are behaviors you usually see throughout a species, not just in individuals. They're usually behaviors that have um, 
been selected for because they've provided some kind of uh, evolutionary advantage, have helped the animal adapt in some specific way. But even if the behavior provides no specific uh, benefit now, it's still like baked in uh, in a vestigial way. Conrad Lorenz, who's like the father of modern ethology, talked a lot about fixed action patterns in his work, fixed action patterns being like a whole series of behaviors a dog might, or any animal might engage in without those behaviors necessarily being learned. Uh, I believe I remember him talking about dogs lifting their legs as an example of this. You know, a dog doesn't need to learn to lift his leg or her leg. Sometimes female dogs do it too. Um, it's a built-in behavior uh, that probably evolved for some reason. Uh, I don't know, maybe making it, making it the pee seem like it's coming from a larger animal maybe i'm not i'm not sure what the what the reason is but clearly it was important because uh the animals who happen to have a natural tendency to engage in this behavior without even having to learn it were the ones who managed to procreate and uh their progeny are the ones in our homes today. A lot of a lot of these baked-in behaviors, these behaviors we don't have to learn, uh, have to do with uh, eating and reproduction. And, and I often will point this out when people are worried about their dogs humping in, in play, puppy playtime or even adult dog playtime. It's a completely natural thing. This is something that came pre-programmed and your dog is still figuring out when it is or isn't appropriate to do this behavior that for the good of their species, they are born having a very strong desire to do because you never know. You never know if you're humping the laundry bag or a female dog in heat. There's always, always that chance you might be uh, humping the right thing. But again, I am giving you uh, the Annie Grossman explanation of these things I feel like I'm still trying to figure out and probably will always be trying to figure out the finer points of um, this amazing area of science I'm just giving you my best dog trainer uh, translation um, you know and, and something like Blinking is a tricky thing to think about because, um, you know, okay, I don't have control over the behavior of my heart beating. You don't have control over those uh, smooth muscles in your body, but you do have control over, um, I guess they're called the skeletal muscles in your body. Blinking, you have control over kind of. Um, you could certainly learn to blink in certain situations and learn not to blink in certain situations these uh these fixed action patterns or you know displacement behaviors also come built in uh you know things we do when we're when we're stressed or excited and dogs that can be yawning or licking their lips or scratching their ear these are things they don't learn they come baked in with humans it's you know jumping up and down or punching a wall or crossing your arms things that um 
we do when we're excited or stressed. You can unlearn those things. You could learn to not do them. Um, so again, so much to talk about, so much to learn. Uh, okay, then she asks about escape and avoidance learning. Escape and avoidance learning is basically everything that doesn't fall into the positive reinforcement quadrant, but that is causing a behavior to be more likely to happen again. It's all the stuff that lives in the negative reinforcement quadrant. If you raise your hand as if to hit a dog and your dog backs off, your dog is being reinforced for backing away from you because backing away from you results in avoiding the threat of being hit. You know, my favorite example in the human world of negative reinforcement, or one of my favorite examples, is um, you know, negative reinforcement is why you put on your seatbelt when you hear the beeping in your car. Putting on the seatbelt makes that annoying sound go away. Or an example of negative reinforcement that affects both humans and dogs is nagging. When you do something in order to make someone leave you alone <laughs> to, to stop bothering you, that is an example of, uh, can be an example of avoidance or escape. Uh, and then she asks about associative versus non-associative learning. Um, I would think that's just learning by association versus learning by consequence or uh, classical conditioning versus operant conditioning, although uh, it can certainly be argued that all of it is operant conditioning. There's always a behavior that results in a consequence. The behavior might just be nothing. And if there's n like no, no criteria for the behavior, and if there's zero criteria for the behavior, then uh, you can call it classical conditioning or learning by association. Um, so associative learning versus non-associative learning. Um, again, I'm not the one studying for the MCAT, so tell me if you learn that I'm wrong. But I think uh, you should be able to master that if you have a good understanding of classical and operant conditioning. Thanks to listening to this podcast. Um, and then she asked about the Bobo doll experiment, which I had actually never heard of. So I asked the Google. And according to uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, the Bobo doll experiment was done in the 1960s and was, uh, you know, I'm just going to read it. Bobo doll experiment, groundbreaking study on aggression led by psychologist Albert Bandura that demonstrated that children are able to learn through the observation of adult behavior. The experiment was executed via a team of researchers who physically and verbally abused an inflatable doll in front of preschool age children, which led the children to later mimic the behaviors of the adults by attacking the doll in the same fashion. So super interesting. Um, not something I know very much about. Uh, I do think there is pretty good evidence that dogs can learn from observation, at least from observing each other. I know that Ken Ramirez, who was on the show recently, has done a lot of work showing that dogs can um, not only learn from each other, but be trained to learn from each other. I, I know that humans are not special in this way. There are lots of studies of lots of different kinds of animals learning from one another by observation. Again, um, I don't 
know very much about any of these studies. I would love to learn more. I'm vaguely aware of uh, research also that's um, been done and I'm, I'm sure is being done about how dogs can learn uh, by observing people. Of course, all learning by observation, there still is a component of, of learning by uh, a behavior being reinforced or punished. I guess it's just the observation is what prompts uh, the trial of a new behavior, and then that behavior is either encouraged or discouraged. And I'm guessing that learning uh, by observation can also in and of itself be a skill that could be improved or discouraged. Like if one dog in your household always tends to do what the other dog in your household is doing, it's probably because there are lots of behaviors that have been reinforced as a result of doing what the other dog does. Whereas if every time the one dog does what the other dog does, he gets punished in some way, the likelihood that he's going to continue to do what the other dog does decreases. Anecdotally, I do think that dogs who witness a lot of aggression are more likely to be aggressive. I think those fixed action patterns might be more likely to kick in. And uh, probably it's the same thing with humans. You know, it's kind of like I was saying before, like, thank God we have scientists who are studying these things in labs with inflatable dolls, dolls or what have you, with pigeons or rats in boxes. But so much of this stuff has already been learned uh, by some people, by some communities, uh, by some dog trainers. Um, all of us who might never fully grasp the intricacies of the science or know all the words, but that doesn't mean we can't appreciate it, be excited about it, and learn from what these um, researchers are doing. Anyway, Supriya Supriya, good luck on your MCATs. Thanks for reaching out. And do make sure to check out these two books that I can't recommend more, um, Accelerated Learning and Behavior Principles in Everyday Life. And oh, uh, there's so many passages from both of these books that I would love to share, but I thought I would just end by picking one paragraph uh, from each on the topic of schedules of reinforcement um, from the book by the Baldwins. Uh, numerous other activities are on vari variable ratio schedules of reinforcement, such as hunting, fishing, sales, begging, card games, gambling, and scientific research. There is no fixed relationship between the number of responses and reinforcement. A salesperson may have to talk to two, four, 10, or 20 customers before making the sale. A gambler may have to make three, five, or nine bets before getting a winner. In all variable ratio schedules, ratio schedules, people with the skills to keep the ratio numbers low will earn more reinforce 
reinforcers and show higher rates of responding. People with the skills needed to pick winning horses are usually much more devoted to betting on the horses than people who lose almost all the time, unless the losers are finding other rewards in betting, such as being with friends or avoiding work. In contrast, all right, Magnolia's had enough. If you had enough of this podcast, many of us develop uh, risk aversion if we fail too often at risky activities such as gambling and are not so hungry for reinforcers that we will face high risks to obtain them. But when the lottery jackpot exceeds several million dollars, even risk averse people may take a gamble. And in the book by Dr. Pamela J. Reed, she talks about how there's continuous reinforcement schedules, fixed ratio schedules, and variable ratio schedules. And I'm um, just going to read this before I run off to tend to my daughter who just woke up on her nap. <laughs> to all those parents out there who are dog trainers who might be listening to this, she writes, uh, and I, I was not familiar with this game that she writes about, but um, going to try it out. Those of you who are parents may be familiar with the timer game, which is an example of a variable interval interval schedule with a limited hold of zero seconds. The timer game can be placed in any situation where you have children confined to a small space with limited activity, such as a long car trip or an airplane or train ride. It goes like this. You set the timer for an amount of time, but the children can't see it timed down. When it rings, the behavior of each child is assessed. If the child is behaving appropriately, a primary or condition reinforcer is dispensed. For instance, you could have them earn tokens to trade for TV viewing time later that evening. If the child is not behaving appropriately, no reinforcement is earned or may even be taken away, i.e. TV time is subtracted from the child's total. The reinforcement schedule is a variable interval because it is based entirely on time and the interval of time is unknown to the child. Technically, it is a random interval schedule because there is no mean time around which the intervals vary. The limited hold is zero seconds because the child must be emitting the desired response exactly when the interval times down. Theoretically, the child could scream, yell, and throw temper tantrums throughout the interval, but Provided she was behaving at the precise moment the timer dings, she would legitimately earn reinforcement. That's the essence of an interval schedule. All right, guys, I could talk about this stuff all day, but must go to my daughter. And also, I have got to turn the air conditioner back on. Thanks so much for listening. You can support School for the Dogs podcast by subscribing, leaving a five-star review, telling your friends, and shopping in our online store. Learn more about School for the Dogs and sign up for lots of free training resources on our website, schoolforthedogs.com.